Good morning. Grateful for visitors. We're glad that you're here to worship with us. We are glad to see the debris back from their trip, praying that they had a good and safe mission trip. And we just are grateful to be able to worship God this morning. I know many of us are preparing for camp. Some are already there. And so some of our people are out for that. But we're just glad to be able to worship God together. The book of James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament because of its emphasis on practical, everyday Christian living. James just gets right down to where we live. In chapters, chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, James talks about Christians and suffering in the world in which we live. He talks about pure religion and the need to take care of orphans and widows in James chapter 1 and verse 27. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 26, he speaks of our relationship between faith and works. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, James mentions the proper and the improper use of human speech in the tongue. He speaks of the need to include God in our travel plans in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, of employers treating their employees right and how employees should respond when they've been mistreated in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. He emphasizes the benefits of prayer, of confession, and of praise in James 5, 13 through 16. And he even tells us we're not too different from biblical heroes like Elijah in James 5, 17 through 18. And he ends the book in chapter 5, 19 and 20 by saying, restore those who have fallen away. Now, on first reading, it might appear like the book of James is just this hodgepodge of spiritual ideas that James kind of fuses together. But based on a closer reading, what we find is that though James approaches it from many different angles, he has one throughout the duration of the book, throughout the five chapters. And that is, how do we draw close to God? How do individuals come into God's presence and how do we approach God? James tells us not only that we need to do this, but that we may on occasion be further away than we might think. And then he tells us, most importantly, how it's done. How do we do it? If we're honest, we all would say there are times in our lives when we feel very close to God, when we're drawn to his word, when we have a hymn on repeat on our lips and in our hearts, when we obey God and serve him, not only because it's commanded, but because we want to do it and we delight in serving him. We've all had those mountaintop experiences, but we must also acknowledge that there are times in our lives when we feel very distant from him. When our worship feels stale and we feel as if we're just going through the motions spiritually and there's this great distance between us and between our God, each one of us should take personal inventory of our proximity to God. God wants us to be close and he tells us that we can do it, but sometimes we're very distant and every one of us has been there, but we can't stay there. So James tells us how we can get close to him. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to James chapter 4. And as Harold read for us a moment ago, James in chapter four, he confronts us right where we are. James says that our biggest problem in our relationship with others and with God is ultimately ourselves. Would you notice in the first three verses, James says it's your passions that are the problem. It's your desires. You covet, you murder, you steal, you ask God for things based on faulty motives in verses one through three. Just notice how often James gets personal and he says you are your own problem. And that's hard for us to swallow in the modern culture in which we live. Because our world is always trying to convince us that it's not our problem, it's the other individual. Our world says, listen, the problems you have in life are outside of you and the solutions are within you. But James says it's the other way around. Our problems are within us and the solution for those problems is outside of us. And what is the solution? According to James, it's drawn near to God. In verse four, he says, you adulterous people. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, would be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Or do you think this for no purpose that the scripture says he made the spirit that dwells in us to yearn jealously over us, but he gives more grace. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Don't speak evil of one another, brothers. The one that speaks evil of a brother and judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you're a judge of the law, you're a doer. You're not a doer, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Who are you that judges another? In James 4, 4 through 12, he gives us a roadmap on how we can draw near to God. If you feel in your walk with God, there's a great distance. James says, I've got great news for you. You can close it. But the bad news is you can also expand it. James says the choice is up to you. If you feel close to God this morning, you say, you know what? My relationship to God is vibrant. It's deep. And it's right where it's supposed to be. James says that's great news. But there's even greater news. You can draw yet closer still. Would you walk with me this morning through James chapter four and notice the seven ways that James says that each one of us can draw near to our God? Number one. He says, refuse friendship with the world. In verses four and five, James says that the individuals who he's writing to, he says, you adulterers and adulteresses, you adulterous people. This idea goes back to the Old Testament. And there was this idea that the nation of Israel, they were God's bride. And when they were unfaithful, God calls them individuals that were guilty of spiritual adultery. You see it in places like Jeremiah chapter three and verse nine or Hosea chapter four and verse 13 or chapter five and verse three. And James picks up on that same idea. What he's saying is this. As you straddle the fence in your relationship to God, it's akin to spiritual adultery. Jesus said Matthew six twenty four. You remember no man can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other. He'll hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Do you want to be close to God? Do you want to draw near to him? James says, refuse friendship with the world. If you choose to be friends with the world, James is saying you don't just make a bad decision when you do that. You become God's enemy in the process. Jesus said, don't take them out of the world. God, leave them here so that they might shine their light. We're supposed to be here. God has us right where he wants us. But God doesn't want the world to get inside of us. And so he says, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 15 and John 17, 17. We live here, but here can't live in us. Now, when James and the other New Testament writers say do not love the world, here's what they don't mean. They don't mean if we if we're going to refuse friendship with the world, that means we can't drive on the same roads that they drive. Or we can't shop at the same stores that they shop at or even watch some of the same wholesome TV shows or other things for recreation that the world engages in. When James and the other New Testament writers like John say, do not love the world or the things in the world. First John two fifteen through 17. What the New Testament means by this is do not imbibe or ingest the world's philosophies. The world's ideas about success, the world's ideas about meaning in life, the world's ideas about ethics and about who God wants you to be. If you're going to be God's friend, James says, you've got to reject friendship with the world. Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God because the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God because it chooses not. Romans eight and verse seven, draw near to God. But the way to do it, James says, is you've got to step away from the world. The world will corrupt our friendship with God. God says, I want you close, but it's either me or the world. You just can't you can't have it both ways. 
I read an article this week about how to refuse sales offers from other individuals. The author said one of the reasons why we sometimes get sucked into the offers of salesmen is because we don't refuse them strongly enough. He says we come in too gently. We come in too politely because we never meant to say no in the first place. What we really mean is, Mr. Salesman, please help me to change my undisciplined mind. I really want what you have to offer. He says when they offer you things, say no and mean it. He says be forceful. And he says we should apply what he calls the rip the bandaid off approach. Just tell them right away. No, I don't want that. No, I won't have it. And then you can't be suckered in. James says refuse friendship with the world. It's like Moses in Hebrews 11, 24 and 25. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses said no to Egypt, and that meant he said yes to God. And if we're going to be close to God, it's to the degree that we learn how to say no to the world. Now, on the surface, most of us would say, that's me. That's right where I am. This is pretty simple. If you walk up to any God-fearing individual and say, would you like to be friends with the world or friends with God? Most of us would automatically say, God, yes. But this is harder than it appears because if we search our own hearts. There are times when the world just sort of slips in. It could be with sexual ethics and the world starts saying different things. And we say, you know what? Love, love is love. Who am I to judge? Love is love. The world's slipping in. You might say about money. It's the most important thing. The Bible says it's a tool. And when we start to think that way, that we'd be better off, that we'd be better people if we had more things, the world started to slip in. God affirms government and he put politics in place for a reason as servants. But when we start to look at them as heroes that could somehow change our world and rescue us from our greatest problem, the world's philosophies have begun to slip in. James says you just can't be friends with both. Sometimes on social media, you go to somebody's page and you may not be friends with them, but it'll say something like you have these mutual friends. You and this other individual have these friends in common. If God had a social media page. And you were friends with the world. You would never go to his page and see that you had mutual friends because none of God's friends are friends with the world. And neither is he. James says, if you want to be close to God, just make up your mind that you're going to refuse friendship with the world. Now, here's number two. James says, humble your heart. The Bible says that God is a God of love, but that God also hates. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, these six things does the Lord hate. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And the first one in the list, Proverbs 6, 17, is a proud or an arrogant look. Would you notice in James chapter 4 and verse 6, it says twice that God gives grace to the humble individual. And then in verse 10, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you or lift you up at the proper time. The humble individual in the eyes of God receives grace and exaltation, but the proud must walk away from God empty handed. You want to be close to God. We all do. James says, put yourself in the proper position. Solomon would say in Proverbs 16 and verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The person that lifts him or herself up on their own is always set up for a fall and it is always a long way down. And so James says, humble yourself in God's sight and then let God exalt you. Hold your hand in James and go to first Peter chapter five. Turn your Bible to first Peter chapter five and notice that Peter emphasizes some of these very same ideas. First Peter chapter five and verse six, Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You know what Peter shows us? Peter shows us that God is not against our exaltation. God's against our timing. God says, I will exalt you. I want to exalt you, but only in my own time. God says, I can do it my way and on my time. 
And Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and God will decide when it's time for you to be exalted. C.S. Lewis called pride greatest evil and sin. He says pride is the sin that makes the devil the devil. And if you look at what Paul says in first Timothy three and verse seven, that's probably right. Lewis says, but, you know, pride has a bigger problem. Pride is this inflation of self, this idea that I'm the best, that I'm better. But more than that, he says the poison of pride is in the comparison. The proud man is not just proud of his money, his intelligence or his spirituality. No, the proud man is proud that he's more spiritual than you, that he has more money than you, that she looks better than you. And so Jesus told a parable in Luke 18. Two men went up to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And what does the tax collector say? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he begins to list his credentials. The poison of pride is in the comparison and it's misleading. Pride says to us that we're better than we are and that people are worse than they are in comparison with us. But the Bible says we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans three, nine and ten. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Romans three and verse twenty three. We often look very good in comparing ourselves to other sinners. But the standard in the New Testament is to compare ourselves to the sinless Christ. And none of us, none of us look good when we do that. Verse ten says it's our responsibility Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and he will exalt you. God says, I'm going to let you do this and I'm going to watch to see if you will. If you want to be close to God, God says, humble yourself in my sight and then I'll exalt you. Now, we may be very skilled at humbling others, but God says that's not our job. Our job is to humble ourselves. And if we do, then God will lift us up. Proverbs 18:12 says that pride comes before Honor comes before humility. Proverbs 29 and verse 23 says that God lifts up the lowly individual. That's what God wants. God says, be pride, be proudful, be proud and prideful and I'll be separate from you. God is allergic to human pride. And as long as you and I are lifted up, we can't be close to him. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is a 1989 science fiction comedy film. You might remember this film. If you don't, the plot surrounds a man by the name of Wayne Skolinski. He's this quirky inventor and scientist, and he has this sort of ray stun gun. And whatever it hits, it shrinks, whether people or things. And at one point in the movie, accidentally, it shrinks not only his kids, but also the neighbor's kids. And they, it was an accident, but they live out the rest of the movie or the plot living very low to the ground. Everything's larger than them and bigger than them. It was an accident. But James says, if you and I are going to be close to God, we've got to learn how to live low to the ground. And it won't be an accident. It'll be as we properly evaluate ourselves in relation to God and we say to ourselves, God, I want you to put me in my right place. I want you to humble me and put me where I should be. Humble myself in the sight of God and then I'll let God exalt me. God draws near to people that know their place and that humble themselves, but proud people. They won't be in his presence. It's hard to get close to a God who continues to stiff arm you away from him because of your pride. You just can't do it. We can't do it. And so we need to be humble. James says, if you do, God will bless you. Somebody says, how do I humble myself? Here are a few ways we can do it. Number one, associate with the lowly. Associate with people that you might consider to be lower than you in various ways. Romans 12, 16 says, mind not high things, but condescend to individuals of low estate. Number two, if you want to humble yourself, learn to acknowledge God in everything. 
Find yourself pointing more upward than inward. Say he did instead of I done. Point upward to God. Humble yourself by saying, you know what? What I have and who I am has come to me from God. You want to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord? Acknowledge the talents and the abilities of other people without caveat. Don't say, well, he's good at this, but let me tell you about that. Or she's done this, but you didn't know her when. Acknowledge the good in others without caveat. And finally, pray this prayer to God. Say, God, put me in whatever situations you need to, to keep me in my proper spiritual place and humble me. Proverbs 22, 4 says the fear of the Lord and the humble heart brings riches and honor and glory. The world says you better toot your own horn or no one will. God says, don't do that. If you do, you'll find yourself far from me. Humble your heart is what James is saying we have to do in order to come close to God, because God honors people that are humble and that know their state. Paul would say, what do you have that you haven't received? And if you've received it, why do you behave as if you haven't? First Corinthians four and verse seven, all that we are and all that we have. Ultimately comes from God. And because of that, we should be humble. And when we are, God says, I'll draw near to you. Now, here's number three. Submit and refuse. In James chapter four and verse seven, James says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This idea of submission means to come under the authority of someone else, to put yourself willingly under their authority and under their submission. If we want to draw near to God, we've got to learn to submit to God. Now, that doesn't mean we will always understand why God does the things that he does or he's not always going to explain himself to us. But it does mean we learn to trust him and say, God, you know better than I do. And it's your will and not mine. Trust in him at all times. Psalm 62 in verse eight. And the person that's close to God has learned to do this through experience and walking with God. This individual learns to say, God, you know what's best. And because of that, I'm going to do things your way. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then he says in verse seven, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. The last part of James four and verse seven is interesting because most most people view this the other way around. We sometimes believe that we're supposed to run from the devil, but there's not a verse in the Bible that ever says that we should. In fact, the Bible says if you resist him, if you oppose him, he's the cowardly lion. He's the one that will flee and turn away from you. Turn your Bible to first Peter, chapter five. Hold your hand in James four and go to first Peter, chapter five. And notice what Peter says about our opposition to the devil. in first Peter five, beginning with verse eight and first Peter five, eight. Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Now, we're very familiar with that verse, but notice the next one. He says, whom you resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same conflict is being accomplished by your brethren throughout the world. The same word resist in 1 Peter 5, 9 is the same word in James 4, 7. And what's the conclusion? Resist him and he will run away from you. Just stand up to him. Just resist him. But we sometimes get this out of balance. God says, do not put up any opposition to me. Just totally release and collapse into my arms and submit to me. And we often resist him. And he says, use everything in your spiritual arsenal to resist the wicked one. And we sometimes collapse right into his arm. James says, do you want to be close to God? Submit and also learn how to refuse. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you've ever brushed a two year old's teeth or a toddler, you know about the Herculean strength that they put up as you try to do what's best for them. You say, listen, I'm trying to save you from dragon breath. I'm doing what I can to help. Oh, but they resist. They fight. They push back. You say this is for your good. And don't you know, we look the same way. God says, would you submit to me? I'm doing this for your good. I'm here to help. 
stand in the way and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk there and you'll find rest to your souls. The people in Jeremiah's day said, we will not. Jeremiah 6, 16. You want to be close to God. Learn how to give up control and learn how to resist the devil. Do not give him place. Ephesians 4, 27. Ephesians 6, 10 and 11 says, stand against the devil and all of his schemes. Here's what we know from James in verse seven. One of these two individuals is on a mission to ruin us and to destroy us. And one of the individuals mentioned in this verse is set out to rescue us and deliver us. And as sooner the sooner we can figure out who is who and which one wants to do what to us, the sooner we'll fight the one we should oppose and follow the one that we should obey. If we want to be close to God, he says, submit to me and refuse your adversary. Now, here's number four. Practice the daily spiritual disciplines. Draw near to God, he says in verse eight. You want to be close to God? Draw near. Get close. How do you do that? I suppose there are many ways, but James uses a word that has this idea of the priestly service that would be typical of the Old Testament. This draw near to God. It's in Hebrews 719. The Hebrew writer says the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw near to God. How do we draw near to God? Through the basics, prayer, Bible study, private praise and worship and corporate worship just the same. James says, draw near to God. And then he gives us this promise. He says, if you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. Here's the question. How close are you to God this morning? The answer is, according to James, as close as you want to be. If you draw near to God, James says, God will draw near to you. He always takes a step forward, never backward. If you come close to God, God says, well, I'll close the gap even closer. If you want to be close to God, James says, just come into his presence. How do I do that? I've got to give myself over to the daily spiritual disciplines that allow me to do that. Aristotle said the desire for friendship is quick work, but true friendship is a slow ripening fruit. He says to wish to be friends is quick work. Anybody can say I would love to be close to God. I want to be his friend. Oh, but the desire for true friendship is a slow ripening fruit. Oh, it takes time. It takes effort. I must be disciplined. The University of Kansas did a study and they found out in order to become true friends with anybody, this isn't about deity, but to become friends with anybody, close friends, you've got to put in at least 200 hours. If you're going to be somebody's close friend, you need at least 200 hours of close kinship. That should alert us to say it wouldn't matter if you had perfect attendance in all of the services in this building. That wouldn't be enough to make you close friends in a year's time. Evidently, God designed Christianity to be so much more. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew four and verse four. I've got to pick up the Bible and read it. Boldly approach the throne of grace that I might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Hebrews four sixteen. I've got to bow my will, bow my head and pray up to God and say, help me. And I've got to do it every day. I think when it comes to the spiritual disciplines, we sometimes psych ourselves out of doing this. We say to ourselves, I'm no professional. No preacher, I, I can't do that. I mean, I'm doing the best. I can't do it. Or, you know, I can't understand all everything in the Bible. But what if we start what we could understand? Somebody says, I'm busy. You know, I know our schedules are crammed and packed and I'm just going to skip Bible reading today because truthfully, I'm so busy and I'm so hurried. If I did it today, it wouldn't really be of any benefit. There wouldn't be anything to it. I can't give my all to it. And so I just I'm going to opt out today. Listen, as it relates to the spiritual disciplines, done beats perfect when perfect isn't done. Just do it. 
We've got to do it. We need to draw near to God and we need to practice doing this on a daily basis. If I could give myself any advice and any one of us any advice, it would be just to make this our natural habit. We need to do it every day. We've got to force ourselves to get into the word because we need it more than we might imagine. Suppose someone said to you, what did you eat for dinner? June 12, 2006, if you were alive. Or June 12, 2021, you say, well, I don't remember. That's right. You probably wouldn't. You might remember some Thanksgivings and some Christmas meals because those meals are great and they're memorable. But rest assured that all of the other meals in between, though not as memorable and not as special, are very much so a part of the sustenance that has kept you alive to this present moment. And you could say the same thing about friendship. What if you talked to your best friend about this same day five years ago? You say, I don't remember. But whatever it was, it's a any conversations that you've had that has built this bond that you have together and forced you closer together. And don't you know the spiritual disciplines work the same way? Every time we pray, every time we read the Bible, we won't gather up some golden nugget that just changes our world. But it's a part of the many spiritual meals which God prepares to keep us alive even today. And so if we're going to be close to him. We shouldn't wait for confetti and fireworks. We should just throw ourselves into this every day because we need it more than we think we do. As busy as we think we are, if we're too busy for this, we're too busy. This is not for professionals or spiritual gladiators. It's for people who are crying out to God and saying, I want to close the proximity. I want to be close. Here's number five. James says, get rid of habitual sins. If you want to draw near to God, get rid of habitual sins. Look at verse eight and verse nine. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Have the right response to your sin. That's what James is saying. He's saying that our eyes should be filled with tears. Our hearts should be ripped out. We should be mourning. It's what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew five and verse four. Blessed are those who mourn. Because they will be comforted. That's what we have to do. If we're going to be close to God, we've got to have the right relationship concerning our sin. And that means to be heartbroken. Notice James doesn't say when you and I commit sin, we should simply say we're sorry or that we should simply cry or feel bad about it. James is arguing for something much deeper than that. He's dipping back into the Old Testament and this idea that you would tear your clothes and put sackcloth and ashes on your head. It's what Job says in Job 42, 6. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. But more than going through the motions, what James is arguing for is a contrite heart that says I've offended God. I've broken his heart. I've messed up relationships and I want to make those things right. When we have that mindset towards sin, God says, I want to be close to a person like that. The person that feels the same way about sin that I do. Turn your Bible to Proverbs 28. Hold your hand in James 4. Go to Proverbs 28 and notice verse 13. Because this verse and this posture towards sin in Proverbs 28, 13 is the posture that will help us to be close to God. It's what we all have to do about our sin. Proverbs 28, 13, Solomon says, he that covers his sin will not prosper. But he that confesses it and forsakes it will find mercy. That's the biblical principle from Genesis to Revelation. If you try to cover it up, God will expose it. He'll push himself away from you. But, oh, if you bring it out into the open, God will cover it up and he'll forgive it. Draw near to God. Have the right response to sin. Now, this is what I am not saying. I am not saying that if we are not sinlessly perfect, God won't come into our presence. If that was the standard, none of us ever would come into his presence. But what I am saying is this. If we're going to be close to God, we've got to change the way we view sin. And I worded this point this way on purpose. Get rid of the habitual sins. Now, we should have this mindset toward any sin. But I'm searching my heart on this and you search yours. 
are there sins that you've just sort of mailed it in on? You used to feel bad when you committed it, but you've given yourself a license to do so without repenting now. I mean, you used to fight against it and oppose it, but now you've just sort of said, hey, this is me. This is the way I am. You know what? I just I just curse sometimes. That's how it's going to be. And case, when it benefits me, when I'm pressured, I, I just tell some lies. That's what I'm going to. James says, where are your tears? Where's your sorrow? Aren't you sad and sorrowing over this? You won't be close to God otherwise. If you want to draw near to God, you've got to have the right response towards sin, which says, I'm not sinlessly perfect. And thank God he doesn't require that. If you walk in the light, First John 1, 7, we do have this continual cleansing. But we've got to say, you know what? I'm God's person and I don't love sin. We've got to change our palate. You know, you could drink orange juice and orange juice is just as good as it could be. But if you drink orange juice after you brush your teeth, now that's a different taste. It's the same juice, but your palate's different. Listen, you commit sins before you become a Christian and you commit sins after you become a Christian. What's the difference? Your palate. It's different. It's been cleansed. It's been changed by Jesus Christ. And when we sin, it just tastes different. And a Christian says, you know what? I, I don't like that. I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done this wickedness in your sight that you might be justified when you speak clear when you judge Psalm 51, three and four. I've got to have the right attitude towards sin because God says, if I do, he'll draw near to me. Here's number six. Love God's people. This may come as a surprise to us, but in the Bible, as far as it relates to our personal responsibility, no one is on good terms with God who's on bad terms with his people. And so James says in verse 11, don't speak evil of one another, brothers. The one that speaks evil of a brother and judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you speak that way about the law, you're not a doer of the law, but you're a judge. Watch the way you talk about the people of God. I was listening to Neil's lesson on Colossians last week in the Bible class, and he emphasized this because the book of Colossians does how important it is that we love one another. And John 13 and how people that know the Lehman Avenue Church of Christ should say about us that we're a loving family because that's what Jesus says is the marker that shows that we belong to him if we love one another. And while we must love one another, indeed, I think a bigger challenge for us to avoid is to talk down about one another. James says, don't slander, don't cut each other down if you're going to be close to God. Watch the way you treat his people. Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Galatians 6.10. Love the brotherhood. 1 Peter 2.17. Love one another with a pure heart fervently. 1 Peter 1.22 and 23. One of the blessings of Christianity is we get involved in each other's lives. And over the years, we get closer and closer. But beware. God never designed for us to get so close to one another so that we could learn each other's business and then turn around and use it to cut each other down. It's a temptation we must be careful to avoid. The longer we're around each other, the better we get to know one another. We learn things about each other. And James is saying you don't take those things and tear one another down. Matt Chandler was right when he says it is a wicked thing to be an expert in the weaknesses of your brothers. We should instead be experts in one another's strengths. That's what God wants us to do. And we should watch our speech. Would you notice in verse 11, you might underline these or circle these. James gives three reasons why we shouldn't do this. He says, we're brothers, we're brothers and we're brothers. Three times he's driving home this point that when we speak evil of one another, we're actually speaking evil of God's family. And so we should watch it. We may think we can whisper it, but oh, he hears us. We may think it's only between us and a few, but he sees us. And you may say, well, I feel distant from God. I'm doing the disciplines. I'm worshiping. I've refused friendship with the world. But are we guilty of gossip and slander? Because if we are, there's a great chasm between us and the divine. 
God will not tolerate sibling rivalry among us. He says, I want you to get along with one another. Let brotherly love continue. Hebrews 13 and verse one. And don't speak evil of my children who are also your brothers and sisters. Now, here's the last one. James says to draw near to God means that we must know our place. There's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Who are you that you judge another? This is directly linked to the point before it, as James is saying, there's only one boss in Christianity. Salvation is in Jesus and him alone. Acts four and verse twelve. There's no other foundation that's been laid other than Jesus. First Corinthians three eleven. He has all authority in heaven and in earth. And the sooner we learn that, the closer we can come to him. One of the simplest ways to draw near to God is to utter these four words. I am not God. And as obvious as that seems, we need to remind ourselves of it. It's hard to get close to God while we're continually trying to dethrone him and sit in his seat. James says there's only one person in charge in Christianity, and that's Jesus Christ. When Jesus rose from the dead, there were many responses to him, but there was only one right response. And it's Matthew 28 and verse nine. The people rushed to him, fell at his feet, held them and praised him as the creator of the world, the hero of the biblical narrative, the head of the church and the savior of our souls. That's the right response. And to do that is to draw near to God. We need that. David Palman often leads us in this song in need. And it talks about us being in need of so many things. And there are several truths that run throughout the song. One, we are in desperate need of so much. Two, there's only one person who can adequately supply all of those needs. And then thirdly, he delights to do so. To be close to God is to know our place, that we really do stand in need, that without him, we really can do nothing and that we need to draw near to him and to come into his presence. You could take Psalm 73 and verse 28, where Asaph says, it is good for me to draw near to God and just write in the parentheses of your Bible. Me, too, because that's true about every one of us. If we draw near to God, we should brace ourselves because we're going to be more loved than we could ever imagine. We're going to be more forgiven and our conscience will be more cleansed than would ever be otherwise. And we'd be more adored than we have ever been before because God is the one who wants us to come into his presence because he deeply loves every one of us. James says, draw near to God. God wants to be close to you. And if you draw near to God, God will come near to you. I was substitute teaching at an elementary. Florida one time and right at the doors that you leave out of, there was this bulletin board with these handheld mirrors on it. And above the mirrors, there was this statement. Meet the person responsible for your success. And it's true in a sense, isn't it, about our spiritually? You could say that about our proximity to God. Meet the person. Look in the mirror and meet the person responsible for your proximity to God. How close are you to him? That's solely up to you. Maybe there's a great distance and you've never obeyed him. You may think to yourself, well, heaven's a long way from here. How can I come near to him? The Bible says you're buried with him in baptism. You see the closeness? You're baptized into a relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you see the unity? He says not only can we be close, I want to be closer than you might imagine. Trust me, because I really want to be friends. I want us to be on the same page, and I want to ultimately take you to heaven with me. Maybe you're a Christian, and you've allowed sin cold devotional life or the slander of the brethren to come between you and God. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Repent and weep and mourn like James says that we all should and we all need to on occasion. And God will draw near to you once again. If we can help you in any way, if this is your invitation, 
Come now as together we stand and as we sing.